Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Hi, Vine family. My name is Louise Redding, and our scripture reading for today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 3 through 11. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Vine Church, good morning to you. Hey, uh, you know, having worship in this season has created so many challenges for us, but it also has some Uh, opportunities that we're trying to make the most of. One of those is that uh, in this season when we are having virtual church, we have the opportunity to hear from different voices from around our country. And uh, we had that thought when we we came to this idea of having a three-week series called A Timely Word, where we are going to invite people, not here in Austin, but people um, uh, from, from our country who we think have a timely word for our church uh, in this season. And today is the first week where we have uh, this opportunity, this interview uh, type format for our sermon today. At the end of our worship, we're going to have a time of feedback. So make sure to jot down um, any thoughts or, or, or questions you might have, even a quote from our guest today as we interact together. We want to be a church in this season where we're in, engaged together with what we're hearing. But I hope this, uh, hope this sermon, this interview uh, actually is encouraging for you today. David Fitch, hello. It's good to be with you. This is our first time to do something like this, so please, please do not screw it up. Wait a minute. I am the first one? I am the guinea pig? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. You are the guinea pig. So I don't know if I should feel honored or if I should be worried. (laughs) I think more worried. Hey, everybody, this is David Fitch. Uh, He's a professor at Northern Seminary. He's He's also a pastor at a church called Life on the Vine Christian Community. You know that our church's name is The Vine? Did you know that, David? Um, I think I did know that. And by the way, Life on the Vine was the church that my wife and I planted. That's, that's 20 years ago now. Now we're at a second one of the churches that church planted called Peace of Christ Church in Westmont. Just to be, you know, totally correct here. All right, let's, let's, let's be correct. 
So about a year ago, you and I met in Pasadena, California at Fuller Seminary. And one of the things that you talked about, it seems to be fundamental in your understanding of how to be a follower of Christ is practicing presence. And uh, one of the practices specifically that you shared, I actually used in a, in a sermon. I quoted you, by the way. I didn't just uh, plagiarize, but I shared in a sermon that prayer of, prayer of epiclesis. Uh, would you share about how that has informed your, your life and even how you're doing it now? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the epiclesis prayer is, is the prayer during the liturgy both the Roman and the Eastern Orthodox liturgy, where the priest invokes the presence of Christ to make himself real. Uh, in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, actually the, 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 the bread and the cup actually become the body and blood of Jesus at the epiclesis. But the point is that we need to um, learn how to enter spaces that God relational spaces God gives us and make space for his presence and praying that prayer, which we learn at the table, uh, uh, is an amazing discipline. It, it, when I pray it, uh, the prayer goes something, my version of the prayer is something like Lord be present in this place. Lord, make yourself known in this place or Lord, help me to be present to your presence in this place and uh, invite his presence here. And just by doing that, my attention is, is drawn off of myself onto the other person and what Jesus is doing right here in the midst. And I, I, I cannot tell you how this uh, practice just reshapes and, and I believe the person who, even if they don't see me praying that prayer or hear me praying that prayer, recognize something's happening. And we are in now in tune with the presence of God. You know, the presence of God, uh, you, at our church, we're studying the minor prophets. Every minor prophet there uh, goes through the disobedience and the disruption and the rebellion of the people of God God withdrawing his presence, consequences coming in, but God promising to restore his presence. We, we are in the midst of, of a country and a culture and a society that is just caught up in our own antagonisms, in our own ways. And, and if we don't make space for God and his presence, uh, God will not force his way into our lives. We need to make space. The epiclesis is the prayer that makes space for Jesus' presence to make himself known, become real in our lives. Mm -hmm. I just think it's absolutely essential. Yeah. Yeah, even today I was talking with our staff. We were talking about the idea of sin. And one of the ideas that the definitions of sin is self-made blockage that puts us out of the flow of God's grace and mercy and power. And what you're saying is that even that prayer of epiclesis is, is just removing those blockages, just, just more acknowledging that God is here and uh, surrendering ourselves to that presence. Yes, and, and so uh, uh, at our church, uh, we believe uh, that every follower of Jesus, every disciple, 
needs to have three places they're living their lives out of. I mean, it's, uh, you know, uh, these three places are kind of broad spectrums, but we have the close circle of worship where we gather on, in our church on Sunday mornings. But we have that, dis- that dotted circle of discipleship where we meet in homes. Most of the time it's homes. A couple of guys meet in a bowling alley when, when the bowling alley was open. Uh, but we meet, we share a beverage or a meal, and we discern his presence and go through what's happening in our lives as it's happening. That's discipleship. And we pray for each other and we pray for our neighbors. But that, but that half circle is we believe every disciple needs to have a place where they can become present uh, to Jesus and his work among those who are not Christians yet, those who do not know Jesus as Lord yet. And can I just tell you, I was saying this the other night to our pastor's meeting. I was saying, this is the place I've experienced by far the most miracles hmm. of, of Jesus. I, I, I don't experience that many. I have experienced some in that dotted circle of discipleship. Rarely on Sunday morning, ironically, although I believe we should see miracles on Sunday morning. But always when I'm with those who are hurting, lost, broken, vulnerable, when space is opened up, God can do some just amazing things Mm -hmm. to bring people to himself. I feel like we've lost that in our culture, in our Christianity in the United States. We've lost it. And we need, if we want to experience miracles, folks, if you're listening to this, and you are saying, I've never experienced a miracle. Go be among the hurting, the lost, the broken, the homeless, the diseased, and, and pray the epiclesis mm-hmm. and allow God to work. And you just be present to him so you can proclaim and say, wow, I want to pray for healing over you. I believe God's working in this situation. And we will see people come to Christ all over again. What gives me hope with that? honestly, is that that is what we see demonstrated in the life of Jesus. He had the ministry of presence specifically to those who were hurting. He drew close to those who were hurting. And when Christ was present with the pain in this world, there was power. And uh, I think he, it's, it's the, the spirit still is at work with the same potency as well, if we can be faithfully present, like you're saying. There is a reason why God works with those who are hurting it's because he can. Uh, in other words, all of us who have our act together, oh, we've got our bank accounts together. We have our jobs. We have our families. We have our houses. We have everything. Oh, everything is together. God, will find it, God finds it very difficult to work because you don't need God. I, I have, I, you met my 15-year-old before we started taping this. And um, uh, I like I like to say little three word buzz sentences to him every once in a while. Uh, like uh, one of my favorite is, uh, "Son, three words." He'll go, "What, Dad?" I go, "Don't be lazy." Okay, that's my Protestant work ethic coming up. But um, this morning I was saying to him, um, "Don't be an atheist. <laughs> Don't be a functional atheist." He's going, "What?" Don't act today as if God does not exist. Mm -hmm. And I just believe so many of us have fallen into the Americanized habit of depending more on our bank accounts, our doctors, not that doctors are bad, but, you know, we need Jesus to heal us. The doctors can help, but we need Jesus to heal us. 
Can we make space for Jesus to work in all areas of our lives again? That's what I think the message of Epiclesis is all about. I want to get to this book that you wrote. I feel like it's so timely. Uh, uh, Faithful Presence, by the way, if, if what you just heard uh, stirs your heart, your book, Faithful Presence, is a fantastic work. And I just encourage anyone who feels stirred by that to pick up David's book called Faithful Presence. Uh, you recently, though, came out with a book called The Church of Us Versus Them, subtitle, <laughs> Freedom from the Faith that Feeds on Making Enemies. So this is not a timely word. It doesn't feel like it's timely here, here and now. Actually, it's, it seems like you have been sitting on this waiting for 2020 to like <laughs> for it to really hit us. Here's a kind of a basic premise that I've, I've found in it is thoughts and beliefs are used as a litmus test on whether a person belongs to our tribe or belongs to them. And you call those litmus tests, you call them banners. Yeah. So what is the problem with being a culture of banner making and banner? Yeah. yeah. Uh, this is so important. By the way, Jesus was all about this. He was criticizing the Pharisees all the time for the way they made the law into a banner that they could wave against people instead of the way God wanted to heal the world by providing a way of life as manifested in the law. So, so what a banner does is it takes this particular belief that we believe in and actually plays a role in our lives and we extract it out of our lives and turn it into a banner that we raise and wave uh, to define us over against them. And the thing is, when, whenever a banner, whenever a belief is extracted out of our discipleship, it becomes very dangerous. And it becomes dangerous because it no longer does any work in our lives. Uh, it becomes something that divides us from other Christians. I'll give you one of my favorite examples. It comes from my mother. And anything that comes from my mother is, is straight from God, as far as I'm concerned. But, but uh, my mother, when she was a little kid, this is, uh, you know, post-prohibition and stuff. Um, she was a German Lutheran growing up, and they drank a lot. And there were a lot of alcoholics. And this is in the 30s. And uh, um, her, so as a little kid, uh, my mother took uh, her and her brother to the local Christian Missionary Alliance Church where they did not drink. Now, they were discerning alcohol, and they, discer they discerned that alcohol was of the devil. And they discerned that it was destroying lives and families and marriages, and their church decided they weren't going to drink anymore. I believe that was a holy discernment. But 85 years later, um, in my denomination, Christian Missionary Alliance, it's changed a little bit in the last 10 years, but that that idea of we don't drink alcohol became a defining uh, banner over against those liberals that drink alcohol. And so something that did actually significant work healed a lot of people back then and healed them out of alcoholism. The spirit was at work, now became a banner and uh, divided us. That happens so often in Christian faith. And it doesn't, it should not happen. We should test our banners to see if they're doing any work in our lives. And if they're not, we need to put them back within the whole repertoire of the story of God and what he's doing in our lives and not make them into a, uh, an us versus them uh, banner to be waved. 
So, you know, when we were talking earlier, you, I asked you what, what scripture reading you feel like would be helpful to dive into um, what we're talking about here with the church of us versus them. And you chose John eight, which I thought was an interesting choice. That was your number one choice. Could you share how that story of Jesus helps us have a lens into what you're getting at here? Oh, oh yeah. Um, so in, in us versus them, the book, I talk about a few uh, things that always happen in the ideological machine that turn us into enemy makers. One is this idea of banner that we just talked about. Another one is enemy. Uh, every um, banner has to produce an enemy, an object of disdain. Uh, and by the way, this is the first sign that this isn't of God. If, you, if your identity is based on having an enemy, you have now lapsed into eternal damnation. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe okay. not that. But it is amazing how, like, how effective a sense of unity can be around having a common enemy, right? Oh, folks, this is just uh, insidious. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm probably, uh, I think people would consider me orthodox in terms of sexuality. But the way our churches have made an enemy out of, say, the gay or, or lesbian person is against everything God is about. Hmm. Uh, likewise, um, you know, that Democrat or that Republican, we, we're in a thick of a mess here. So enemy. Uh, the other thing is there's always a bit of perverse enjoyment. It reveals like, uh, you know, when the, uh, uh, when the Pharisee said, Luke, uh, I'm sure glad I'm not like them. You know, that's that kind of perverse enjoyment and enjoyment at the demise of another person is a sure sign that we're in the enemy making machine. By the way, enemy making machine is not just because an enemy is made. This is the tool of the enemy. This right. is the way the enemy works. You to say, remove me. You're talking about you're talking about the devil, right? The devil, Satan. <laughs> Satan. This is the way he works to take us out of the presence of God. And what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 3, you people are living in the flesh, not, as if God does not exist. Um, so there's, there's, that's what an antagonism is, is banner, enemy, perverse enjoyment. Antagonism is something that digs in and takes pleasure at winning, as opposed to a conflict, which is part of everyday life, which Jesus always is working. Uh, helping to remind us this is where God is working. Yeah. And if you turn it into an antagonist. So having said that, uh, John chapter 8, great story. A woman is caught in adultery. She is placed before an angry mob. Verse 3 says something like, uh, making her stand before all of them. So so there's, uh, you know, she's been made into an object. Uh, uh, there's there's no relationality there. There's distance there. They're not, connect, they're, they're not thinking of her as a person. Think about how the enemy-making machine creates relational distance between you and the object so that you can disdain that person or that object um, and not have to have relationality with them. So then in the midst of this spectacle, Jesus is asked by the Pharisees something like, uh, should we stone her as the law of Moses has commanded? I think that's verse 5. And so here we see the law, like I was saying earlier, 
is, is become something that God gave to be concretely lived out in the covenant life of, of Israel has now become a banner to get behind. Instead of a sign of God's grace and life for the world, it's now used as a banner, an ideology of self-righteousness that you got to take a side on now. And there's some, there's almost some perverse um, self-congratulatory enjoyment at work here. She's failed the law and we have not. Notice what happens next. Jesus stoops down to write on the ground. No one really knows what he wrote on the ground. It's a tactic, folks. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's using silence and distraction to um, distract. Um, uh, it's just stunning in the life of Jesus to um, notice how often he refuses to enter into the violence of other people and will use tactics to distract and not get in caught up in the enemy making machine. Uh, I, I want to challenge us all. Will we use tactics, tactics of grace, presence, questions, refusing to enter into the violence and antagonism of the world to allow for space for Jesus to work in our conflicts. This is, I think, the challenge of, of the church of us versus them, the book, and but also, and more importantly, Jesus. And, and John chapter 8 is an excellent example of it. Well, then Jesus uses another tactic. He says, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to cast a stone, to throw a stone. He, he's saying... He's saying provocatively, okay, you people, you obviously are so righteous and perfect enough to stand in judgment against somebody. So by all means, go ahead, go ahead and stone her. But in doing so, he's asking a question that kind of reveals the contradiction, the uh, um, duplicity at work in the antagonism. Um, I think that's a skill we all could use. We could all learn. Um, how do we reveal? Because ideology or uh, uh, anger and hurling of uh, making an enemy of someone is usually covering over something about ourselves. Mm -hmm. So can we just have a little mercy and grace in the middle of this and um, ask a good question? Let people unwind, see what's going on, there jesus is always asking these these questions these these uh tactics to reveal the contradictions or the duplicity to the the, the uh the pharisees are always trying to like you know catch him in a trap where he has to either go yay or nay you know and luke 20 23 through 24 after he gets asked again one of these questions he says he, Luke says he saw through their duplicity and he asked them, you know, show me a coin, you know, are we going to pay taxes or not? He wants to catch Jesus. They want to catch Jesus. On which side of the ideology of government are you? And he says, show me a side of a coin. Uh, can we do this kind of work? And, and I guess my, I want to end 
this little diatribe on John chapter eight by pointing out that that um, everybody leaves, the antagonism dissipates, everybody kind of comes to grips with their own sin, and uh, all the people walk away, and it's only after everybody has dissipated and the, the antagonism is unwound that Jesus says something like, "Women, woman, where are your accusers?" He's He's clearing space for the work of healing, redemption, restoration. And she says, they're all gone. And then he says, then, then he says, go and work out your salvation and fear and trembling. Now, that's actually a appalling way of saying uh, what Jesus said, which I says, he says something like, go and sin no more. Work it out. This is, this is what the world needs right now is Christians who can be Jesus's uh, and, and be present in the midst of the antagonisms and not enter in, ask a few questions, let the antagonism unwind so that the real work of Jesus can begin to heal the world. John chapter eight. It is a great example of what you're talking about. Like just, yeah, the fact that to humanize the, the person rather than make them an object to not enter into the dialogue with the stated boundaries that are given to us, um, to ask questions that unwind things, and then to make space for antagonisms to fall down, and then also to speak a loving instruction that also sounds at times uh, pointed. You know, because I think some people could look at this and go, oh, we're, if we're not going to be a church of us and them, we're just going to water down our convictions. And that's not the case. No, it's the posture in which we relate to others seems to be so much a part of the problem. So let me ask this. How can we move through, move through the us, uh, us and them paradigm that it seems to be <laughs> the water in which we're swimming in? How, like, how can we actually move beyond that? What are some tools that we can utilize as a community? Yeah, at the end of uh, the, the book, us versus them. I, I, I think I give like about five tactics that I see as really prevalent in uh, Jesus life. Uh, you know, things, tactics like asking good questions, tactics like uh, being present to someone, but, but, but here's, here's, so, so you can go on, you can go and look in the back of the book. Uh, but here's what I feel like we've lost. Um, and you read this in Paul in the Corinthian epistles when there are, when there, I, I'm, I belong to Apollos. I belong to Cephas. I belong to Paul. And Paul's going, Oh no, you, you are living in the flesh, not the power and presence of God. A little bit later on in first Corinthians three, he says something like you're the temple of God. You plural are the temple of God. You together are the pre where the presence of God resides. But every time you get into these antagonisms, um, you're, you're, you're living in the flesh. There is no God present there in Jesus Christ. And I, I think we need to understand more than ever that there is a power at work in the world through Jesus Christ. It is God, but it refuses to work coercively. It refuses uh, to exert anger to the point of denigrating another person. God refuses that. But if we can just trust him to make space and work 
we will see a new day in our lives, in our churches, and maybe even in America. Wasn't that good? You know, I think one of my greatest takeaways from that conversation is that in this season of life, I think one of the greatest opportunities for us as a church to bear witness to who Jesus is and Jesus' kingdom is how we exist in a culture of antagonisms. For us to, uh, to be separate, which is like another way of saying holy, for us to be separate from that kind of contention when we're just dis- we are disparaging upon the enemies that we make in our faith, that we resist that enemy-making machine and, and we practice being present with people, especially those whom we might disagree with. I think this is one of the greatest opportunities for us in this challenging season that we're living in for us to point to who Jesus is. And one of the greatest reasons why we do this is not merely out of duty, but we remember that we, as Paul said, we were once enemies of God. We were considered like antagonists towards the kingdom of God. But Jesus drew near. Jesus was present. Jesus came to us with mercy and grace and won us over won us over by engaging with us in the midst of conflict, in the midst of loss and brokenness and despair. Therefore, this is the reason why we follow him into the antagonisms of our day, and we do so differently. This is because we've been won over by that. And this gives us purpose. This gives us reason to worship Christ and follow him with everything. So may it be so for us as a church.